This is Cindy Schmader with Service Master Restore by Schmader, and you're listening to Success in Iowa. Welcome to this episode of Success in Iowa, and a special episode today. I'm expecting to learn a lot from Mr. Uh, Mick Guta of TS Bank. Mick, thank you so much for your time coming in today, and let's talk a little bit about your background before we get started, because when you were a young man, you were not in banking, correct? That's correct. I had no desire. No desire. It wasn't even on your radar. Nope. <laughs> but in the meantime, since then, you have grown a very, very successful bank and a lot of different uh, branches that I think you guys just opened a new one in Ames, did you not? Yes, that's correct. In Ames, Iowa. Talk back at the, before you were, uh, got into banking, what was it that, what was it that you did back then? Well, I'm an ag major from Iowa state and I graduated there and, uh, and I was also an Army ROTC, and so uh, I was going on to active duty after my graduation, and I knew that I'd be going to Vietnam. What year was this? And uh, I went to Vietnam in 1970. I was over there in 70 and 71. I graduated from Iowa State in 1969. And so my degree is actually farm operation, and my long-term goal in life was to farm. I always thought I'd come back to that, and then I got into aviation. Uh, they came to me the week that I met Judy, my junior year at Iowa State, and the Army said, Mick, do you want to fly helicopters? Well, at that point, I was going, and I am an infantry officer, but I was going infantry and then Special Forces, Green Beret, Airborne, and all that stuff, because I wanted to possibly do that, later go on to military intelligence, and maybe make the military a career, and, and farm after my retirement from the military. And So that was my goal. No no marriage was foreseen. I dated a lot of wonderful girls, but didn't think I should marry because I knew where I was going and I was going special forces and that wouldn't be good. And then, then my January of my junior year, they said, Mick, do you want to fly helicopters? And I said, whoa, yeah. And that image of that green beret on my head just evaporated and I became a pilot. <laughs> so anyway, a lot of things happen in life that you just don't expect. And, uh, and that was one of them, and it, it, it changed my life. And uh, I was in a leadership role in combat and uh, learned a lot from that. But I, I have said many times that my leadership role in, in college, even in high school, I was in a lot of leadership roles. I learned a lot, of, a lot from that. And I've, I said in a speech once at Iowa State on the dedication of our alumni center that uh, I don't want to offend any of the, the educational people here. But I said, the activities at Iowa State may be why I'm standing here, because I learned how to lead. And uh, I learned a lot from that. And then I had to use those skills to basically survive and try and protect my guys in Vietnam when we were in combat. When you are getting ready to, you, you know that you're going to be going over there and serving. And going in at that time, this war had already been going on for a while. Oh, so yes. there's probably a lot of preconceived notions that you had of what it was going to be like. There wasn't, you weren't going in with uh, just a blank slate. No, and and strange for those times, it was my desire to go there. That was uh, one of my goals in life was to, because even in high school, you know, every night on the news was Vietnam, Vietnam, Vietnam. I just had this calling that I, I needed to be there and I needed to help those people. And so my, my life, goals kind of transitioned at one point I thought I was going to be a pastor 
because I was president of Southwest Iowa United Church Youth, and I went from church to church and spoke. And then I thought I wanted to be a pastor, but then I realized that had nothing to do with Christ. It was just about Mick thinking he looked good in the pulpit. So <laughs> did you? <laughs> so, did you look good? I don't know if I look good or not, but <laughs> but I transitioned from that, and then for for true reasons uh, in faith, I wanted to become a missionary, and so I thought I was going to be going into jungles and be a missionary, and then that transition into Green Beret Special Forces because of Vietnam. And my goal in going there was truly that I thought we needed to go and help protect those people's right to practice their belief in God because that was being pulled away from them by the communist countries. So that's kind of how life transitioned and, and went from being a pastor and missionary to Green Beret on to being a Cobra attack helicopter pilot and lead and Vietnam and, you know, and the ugly thing is, you know, destroying people and things and, uh, but at the same time, protecting my, protecting my troops. And as I said, those leadership roles learned early in life. Many times I can see how they kept me alive and kept my friends alive because I, I found out the importance of communication with those who are, you're associated with and making sure that they know why you're making those decisions. So in the middle of a mission, in the middle of a gun run, I may change everything in seconds, but as soon as we get on the ground to rearm and refuel, I would go tell my wingman why we changed that so he understood my thinking, and hopefully then that developed confidence in me. Because when I broke off from hitting the target, then his mission was to put suppressive fire, rockets, minigun, everything down to protect me on my break. And so basically my life depended on him, and we need to have good communication. Was that a common uh, way of thinking across the board back then, or is it a little bit more unique to the way you were doing things? I saw it in the cavalry, air cavalry, which I was in, um, and I, I think it was probably true across the board that that it took some of us maybe longer than others to figure that out, but I think it was pretty well accepted how important that was to make sure everybody understands the thought processes and uh, why I make those decisions. How long were you in Vietnam? Just one year. Just one year. Yes. And then uh, how long were you active duty in the service? I was active duty three years, the infantry training, flight training, about a year, one year in Vietnam. And then I was stationed at Fort Riley, Kansas for one year before I got out. But then I joined the Nebraska Guard and I flew for the Army National Guard for about eight years, I think it was. And I was a unit commander and instructor pilot for them. And at this point, had you, and after you now in the National Guard, had you gotten into farming then as well? Doing a little bit of farming, raising hogs with my brother, and uh, going to graduate school at UNO, working on my master's degree in economics, and uh, working part-time as a consultant for the Farm Business Association, and flying for the Guard, and church youth group advisors with my wife, and some other, another couple, and just, <laughs> I kept myself busy. At some point, everything shifted, and your entire trajectory of your life changed. Uh, what was going on then? I really did not like banking, I thought. I loved working with the farmers and doing ag lending and that type of thing. But my real problem was being confined in a building. And I would look out the windows and just think, I need to get out of here. And after I had a, several job offers, but one I had in 1978 was with LaDoit Land Management Company, a Farmers National company in Omaha, and they wanted to expand more in the southwest Iowa. And they offered me a job, doubled my salary, offered me a company car. I still get to live in my hometown. 
and I'd be working with farmers, and I'd be outside most of the time. And so I decided I'm taking the job. And my the the bank owner and my boss Bob, who is still a good friend to this day, he's in his he's in his late 80s, but he um, he didn't want me to leave, and uh, he knew I'd been interviewing, and I told him about the interview and the offer, and I told him I'd be leaving. And we both had tears in our eyes because we, to this day, are good friends. But he was trying to talk me out of it, and uh, I finally said to him, I said, well, Bob, you know I'm not happy. What would you do if you were me? And I should paraphrase this by saying that at that time we were living in a house trailer out on the farm. Uh, Like I said before, going to grad school, all that stuff. We didn't have much, depending on the price of hogs, what my net worth was. (laughs) And uh, I said to Bob, you know I'm not happy. What would you do if you were me? He said, Mick, why don't you just buy the bank? And I'm 31 years old, maybe had a net worth of $25,000, and he's offering me the bank. And I thought about that that day before I went home, and uh, I thought, you know, what I'm really missing is part of it's being outside, and some of it's being confined in a building, but a lot of it was was being the risk taker and making the decisions and being involved like I had been in combat and other leadership roles. And so by the time I got home that night to talk to Judy, I walk into our house trailer and I tell her what's going on. And she <laughs> said, how can that be? <laughs> how would we do that? Right. And I said, well, let's go up and talk to mom and dad. So we walked up to my mom and dad's home out there on the farm where we were living. And I told them the story. And my father said, I thought something like this would happen. I said, did you talk to Bob? He said, no, I just had a suspicion this was going to happen. I've talked to mom about this, and if it's okay with your siblings, you need to go talk to them. You can have anything out of this farm you can get to buy the bank. And I was just shocked that he'd already figured that out. You know, but he's a very smart man, very smart man. And so I go talk to my brother and his wife and my sister and her husband, and I'm the baby of the family. And I guess they were treating me like the baby. And said, yeah, sure, risk the fam- family farms. We've had it for 100 years, but who cares, you know? (laughs) So we refinanced the farm, got a $250,000 loan for the down payment, and then the Grunstall family carried the rest of it on a business contract, the other roughly three-quarters of a million. And at the age of 31, I became the uh, owner and president and chairman of the board of what was then called Trainer State Bank. Those are big numbers. And at the age of 31, to take on something of that magnitude, it, it's one thing to have faith in yourself that you can do this, but you can't do it alone. And you ha- there has to be some people in place that are going to support you along the way. The amount of faith that that took is staggering to me. Yes, it, and, and it was something that we prayed about a lot. In fact, before Judy and I walked up to talk to my parents, we, we prayed about it, and we still felt like moving forward. So it was, it was a lot of faith, but Again, it was kind of uh, no more risk than getting shot at almost every day. Well, that's you know? a good so, point, too. <laughs> and, and to be in the role that I was in the military, to, to be a pilot role that I had, you had to pass certain psychological profile tests. They never told us what the results were. I didn't find that out till after I got into banking and into business, and we started using those. And uh, then I learned that the test that we took was a psychological profile, and you had to fit into this I call it weird sector, (laughs) to be accepted into flight school. And so I think that kind of explains why at the age of 31 I'm ready to take that on. And and like I say, it's... uh, And and Judy jokes frequently that even, you know, shortly after I bought the bank, then I won another million in debt and built a new building. 
And then we hit the egg crisis. And there were some very difficult times there in the 80s with that. And we'd have even threats over the phone. It wasn't for many of our clients, but there were organizations in Iowa that were doing that to bankers. And, and uh, so it was, it was the time when I, we put an alarm system in our house and stuff like that, you know, but protect my family. But I wasn't really worried about that because I was working with the, the clients and we had, we had good relationship even when they were in very difficult times. But when it was difficult and negative things were happening, Judy says, aren't you concerned? Aren't you, you nervous about this? And I said, hey, honey, they ain't shooting at us. You know, and, and I guess it kind of helps put, put things in perspective. And uh, it, You're exactly right about that. At the time, was that the only location for the bank? Oh, yes. Yeah, it, it was... Uh, uh, when I bought it, it was about a $7 million bank. And when we moved into our new building, you know, like five years later, I think we were up in the low teens. And then by the 2000s, I felt really proud of myself that I'd grown them up in the, in the $50 million bank. And then, of course, in 2003, our son comes home and he kind of takes on some leadership role. And, and now we're already way over a billion and have all these locations. You know, So I, I can't brag about anything anymore. <laughs> what do you credit that growth to early on? Early on, yeah, just working closely with with the local economy, which is, of course, was the most, mostly farmers, but also Main Street businesses. And then we did open a branch in Macedonia. Well, that was our first expansion. The bank there closed, and I had a chance to acquire that. And uh, I wasn't sure whether to do that or not, but I, I called my friend Tom Whitson, who was at Constable Savings Bank at the time, and we talked about it. And we were competitors, but we were also friends, you know, and both both farm boys, you know, and. So we talked about it, and then the end of the conversation, he says, you can do it, Mick. <laughs> and so I went ahead, and that was our first expansion, and then we started expanding into Council Bluffs, into Hy-Vee, and then the other branches. We uh, touched on it just briefly, but organizations of this size are only as good as the people that you have with you taking along the way. Were you able to recognize the qualities that you needed in these people ahead of time, or was it something that was just kind of cultivated as you went through and everyone grew together? Well, my main building block on my success was the vice president of the bank was Hans Schmidt. Uh, he ended up being in the bank for 77 years. He, he died in, in his mid-90s. 94, he died. In, in the age of 94, he died, and he started when he was 17. He was my uncle. He was my godfather. And he was my vice president. <laughs> so he'd known me since I was a baby. So he is a very smart man, too. And so he was a great mentor to me. But the other staff that were there, too, that were doing other detailed things, technical things, were very good at what they did. And, and I made a point to talk with them a lot about it so that I understood what they were doing, why, and how. Because I, well, first off, if something happened to that person and they get hit across the road, then I've got to train the next person. So I wanted to know exactly what every job was and how it worked. I've spoken with people at various banks around the region, and there's a lot of small hometown banks yes. out there. And you seem to have found a way to grow the bank while still maintaining that small town value that is what got you up to this point where you're at. Yeah, it's what we've we focused on. And it's important to our son, too, that he, he sees it the same way. And I think almost all of our management team. Well, so many of us have the same background. A lot of us grew up on the farm out on a gravel road. And, and that's... That's where our roots are, and we, 
we see how small-town America works because we grew up in it. And, and the key part of that thinking is that small-town America is very supportive of those who support them. And that was an important lesson that I learned in the military, but it's also important in your hometown because you have to support the local retail, the local farmers, the people buying a home or whatever it might be, because they're part of that family, so to speak, and you've all got to work together. And if they bring their money in to us, then we can loan it back out to other people and help them out and uh, keep growing the community in that way. So, yes, our, our acquisitions have been basically small, smaller town community banks, and uh, I suppose our locations in Council Bluffs would be the biggest city that we are in. Uh, Ames, of course, uh, the world, we've opened that one up there now. That's what you might call a large city for, for Iowa. <laughs> for Iowa, yeah. <laughs> but it's, uh, I think that we visited just briefly at your uh, 100th birthday celebration, which is where you and I met. And something that was uh, stressed by you and for everyone else that was there is how important it is for you to support the communities that you're in and to give back to the communities that you're in. And it's actually part of, it's part of the way that the business is structured, correct? Yes, yes. And and a key part of that is, well, a former ownership of the bank felt the same way. But I was raised that way by my parents, you know, that you have to work within the community. You have to make some sacrifices. Uh, you spend time serving on boards that maybe you don't even want to be on, but you have something to contribute, you know, and to to work to support the community in that way. And, you know, an example of a small town is when I was in second grade, our farm home burned to the ground. And it was in the fall, it was in October. And I don't know, if, I don't think it was the next day, I think it was two days later, the rows and rows of corn pickers are in our fields picking our crop for us and putting it in the, the corn cribs because that's just the way small-town America functions. You know, literally, the neighboring farmer is your competitor, but at the same time, when something like that happens, everybody pulls together and, and makes it work. And then the night, a vision I'll never forget is the night that the house burned down. I was standing up our, our house is up on a little bit of a hill. I'm standing there looking down our quarter-mile lane toward the gravel roads. And for a half mile, cars are parked bumper to bumper. And people, some of them are sitting there watching probably, but a lot of them have walked all that way and up the lane <clears throat> and are going in and out of the house, carrying stuff out and rescuing our belongings and our food and our clothing furniture and all that type of thing. So that's the small town America that I knew. And the other part of that small town America and what it means to me is when I left for Vietnam, I left through San Francisco airport, um, landed there to catch a ride to the Air Force Base where we catch our charter to go to Vietnam. And a flight school buddy's wife was coming to pick me up. My flight was late, so I'm in a hurry. And there's four or five people walking toward me, and they're yelling at I'm in uniform, of course. They're yelling at me and spitting at me, calling me a baby killer. And But I, was, I would have gone after them because that's just my mentality. <laughs> and, but my flight was late, and I had to hurry up and meet this guy's wife so she could get me the next flight. And so I got there and everything. And, but that was a, that's a, th and a situation I never forgot. But because I was in a hurry, I didn't 
hit anybody, and I didn't end up in jail, which probably would have kept me out of Vietnam, you know, but <laughs> I wanted to go to Vietnam. So anyway, on the way home from Vietnam, I flew through Los Angeles airport, and the same thing happened. And I didn't have any inclination to go after him at all. I just laughed at him because I'm thinking to myself, in about four hours, I am going to be home in Judy's arms, and I don't care what you guys do to me. And so that's how I got treated in San Francisco and Los Angeles. Then I arrive home. My whole family, siblings, everybody is at Epley to meet me and welcome me home. And then the next Sunday, I go to church at Zion there in Trainer, And we were ushered out of the church in those days, and I was sitting up toward the front, so I got out early, and people are just swarming around me, and I'm getting hugs, and I'm getting handshakes from the guys. I'm getting some hugs and kisses from some of the, the women and the mothers, you know, and and then as I'm working in the bank a year later after I come home for active duty, these people walk in the bank and say, oh, Mickey, it's so nice to have you back home. And jokingly, I think in my mind, that should be Captain Gutar to you, not Mickey. You know, <laughs> but as a little boy, I was called Mickey all the time. Right. You know? so, so it's just a difference, too. I mean, that, that's a significant part of my life that is an example of how small town America works. And I want to support that type of concept. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about some of the different philosophies that I have uh, read recently. A lot of it has to do with Stoicism, which it sounds like whether you are studying that or not, it sounds like a lot of these same kind of things, that it's our situation is just our situation. It's our reaction to it that is what defines us. And listening to some of the things that you're talking about, I understand completely where the success for this came from. And when you're in a leadership role like that, uh, and the people under you are looking for, okay, how do we get through some of these situations? Because it has to have been difficult at times that uh, whether it be from what's going on in the economy or whether what's going on specifically with TS Bank, there had to have been a lot of difficulties. But if you can keep that focus on the future and that mentality of just like some of the things you're talking about, it's catching and everyone under you just kind of comes along with it. When I was at your 100th birthday party, uh, standing outside of a TS Bank in that uh, wonderful facility that you have in Council Bluffs, you could see that the folks that were all wearing those TS Bank shirts had some pride in where they were at and what they were doing. And well done, sir. Seriously, I mean, it's just it's a uh, it's inspiring. Well, and those people you saw wearing those T-shirts are are why we are where we are. It's not just because of Mick Guta. There are. Many of those people who are just have played significant roles, all of them play some role, even if it's just meeting with a single customer face to face and helping them with a financial decision or whatever it might be. But they are the reason we are where we are. And I would share something that I didn't realize that I preached so much until we built a new addition and onto our facility and trainer. And you sit in the employee lounge and you look through this glass wall at the wall on, on the other side of the hallway. And on that wall, in one-foot-high letters, is painted the quote, the troops come first. And after that, it says, Captain Makuta, U.S. Army. That is a lesson that I learned from a probably relatively uneducated drill sergeant on a grassy knoll in Fort Benning, Georgia, in infantry school. And he said, the troops come first. And then the example he gave us was kind of humorous, too, you know, because you're thinking of these serious things about combat. And then the example he gives is, for instance, when you're, when you're bedding down for the night, you make sure everybody's in their pup tent. You know, and everybody's, everybody's secured and everything's okay. 
And Mick, you know, he didn't say Mick, but he's talking to we officers there. He says, you know, you guys, you're probably going to sleep in a GP medium tent. There's probably going to be cot in there for you to sleep on. You don't have to sleep on the ground. But you make sure everybody else is tucked in first. And when you're going through the mess line, you always go through the mess line last. And the reason for that is because if they ever ran out of food, you don't ever want to see them see you eating food when they didn't get any. So you make sure everybody goes through the line first. And then again, the drill sergeant gets a smile on his face and says, the truth is there'll probably be a lot of food left over. And by the time you come through as an officer, that mess sergeant is going to see you and he's going to slop more food on your plate than he does on the other guys. <laughs> but on the other hand, you may not get any, you know, but it was a lesson that just stuck with me for life. And I didn't realize I preached it so much that they would paint it on the wall in our new building. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's critical to, I, I consider it critical to success that you understand that. In, in other words, that customer service representative or teller that you might call them in the bank might be the, one of the lowest paid people in that bank. But when the customer walks in to see them and deal with them, they are the most important person in that facility to that customer. It's not me sitting in my office. It's the person waiting on them. So that person has to be well-trained, know that we are backing them, training them, you know, encouraging them to do it in the right way. And then I think your clients recognize that and see that in your employees. What does the future hold? Do you have any goals for the immediate future or long-term goals still for TS Bank? Where, where uh, do you see this headed? Well, we are continuing to look at the possibilities of, of uh, other acquisitions, possibly. And we have these other businesses that we purchased, the accounting firm and investment firm and those types of things that are related to the financial world. But uh, we will continue to look at, and we get calls every once in a while on opportunities that are out there for um, other banks that might be available for acquisition. And we will pursue those if they look like they fit into our plan. So no no real exit strategy for retirement right now or anything like that? You're just enjoying doing what you're doing and going to keep the status quo going? Yeah, we will keep rolling. Our son, of course, is uh, Josh is our, our uh, CEO and and uh, our daughter Heidi is an attorney in Omaha, but she's on our board of directors. And uh, so they're still involved. So we expect to see it go on through the, the, the family, through the next generation. I have, uh, that was one of the things also that I noticed at the birthday uh, celebration was all of the family that you had there. And it, it wasn't just, it, it sounded like most of them had key roles in what oh, was yes. happening. Yes, yeah. So it's, that's an important, it, it's, to me, it's, it's kind of how did all of these people come up together with such great knowledge and, and to be able to be so successful at this because there's just a common thread running through all of it. It looks like you're all facing the same direction. Yes. Yeah. Well, and I think a lot of that is values that you're raised with that don't have anything to do with banking. You know, it's just personal values and, and, and how you live your life. So there, there's a lot of that 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 is involved too. And sometimes for some people that fits into banking and for some of them, uh, people in our family wouldn't because of other interests. Do you get asked very often about what advice that you have for other aspiring business owners or entrepreneurs? 
Well, as I just discussed, you know, I think the key one is that the troops come first and you have to take care of them. You have to keep them informed. You have to make sure they're well trained. And that's the only way you're going to be able to move forward. That is just critical. And I see so many situations in life with not just in banking, but in other businesses, too, where that the subordinates are not being treated the way they should be treated and the importance of them is not recognized. Mick Guta is the chairman of the board of TS Bank. Sir, it's been, uh, it's, it's been very educational for me. And, thank you very and, much. And I thank you for taking the time to come in and join us uh, on Success in Iowa. And I look forward to uh, continuing to be able to work with you. And uh, with, what, you know, with the radio station that we have here and with the podcast business here, it's, uh, I'm looking forward to this. I'll look forward to it, too. Thank you. And thank you very much for listening to this episode. Go back and listen to previous episodes with some of the other great guests that we've had on and uh, look forward to uh, future guests as well. Until next time, take care.